Opening our Bibles again to the book of Ephesians, we continue our series in this epistle, the Ascension Epistle, as we have called it. And we're focusing on verses 5 and 6. Actually, the end of verse 4, as you have it in your ESV, beginning with in love, and 5 and 6. 4b and 5 and 6. Let's bow before reading God's Word. Our Father, we are completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We know that this is true. And how wonderful it has been that you have opened our hearts to show us our need of the Savior. And we pray that you would open the hearts of those who among us today do not know Christ and that you would bring them into your family by faith in Jesus Christ. But we pray for your people and ask that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that we will live more consistently as sons and daughters of the living God having examined together this text than we have in the past. Continue to work within our lives as we are justified and adopted, but also as those judicial acts are once for all, we pray that you will sanctify us progressively and make us to be truly holy, that we may stand before your throne one day with hearts that are completely free from sin, even though in this life we believers struggle. But we struggle in the power of your Spirit And under the authority of your word, may your word be open to us, and may Christ himself preach the gospel to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1. I'd like to begin with verse 3, and we will read through verse 6. This is the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Looking again at the end of uh, verse 4, In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. What is your greatest privilege in Christ? Well, someone might say it's forgiveness of sins. Others might say it's freedom from guilt, our justification. And who can measure such privileges? Wonderful indeed. What must God be like to have done those things for us through Jesus Christ our Lord? But there is one other privilege, one other privilege that is even greater. The greatest privilege of the Christian is to be called a son or a daughter of the Heavenly Father. It is to be adopted into God's own family. In this, God has gone the second mile. It is at least theoretically possible that God could have saved us from our guilt. He could have justified us, but not made us his sons and daughters. In that, he has done, indeed, a wondrous thing. And my purpose this morning is to help you to marvel at the grace of adoption and to help us to contemplate and appreciate the privileges 
of being God's child as we expound the text. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said somewhere that here we have a simple way of testing whether you are a child of God and whether you have a spiritual mind. It's to ask yourself whether all this seems to you a waste of time or whether you see in it the most wonderful and glorious thing that you have ever looked at in the whole of your life. A child always delights in looking at his father's plan and purpose. And that's what we're doing together this morning. I would like to begin as we look at this text by seeing the grace of adoption. The grace of adoption. If you are God's child, it is because of God's grace and His grace alone. Look at the text again. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. So grace is stressed from beginning to end. Grace. We preach it, we sing about it, we talk about it, yet how few really enter into the truth of what grace means. Salvation is totally by grace and adoption is altogether by the grace of God. We sinners, fallen in Adam, want to hold on to something, something that we can merit, something we can earn, something that we can deserve or produce. But grace is God's unmerited favor to those who deserve His infinite displeasure, to those who could never earn God's favor. Is that you? Do you know that to be the case with you, that you could never have earned God's favor and your salvation is by grace alone? You and I know that adoption is by grace when we consider our original lineage. You know, the popular view is that everyone is God's child and that God is everyone's father. The Bible teaches nothing like that. It teaches that God is the father of his people chosen in Christ, redeemed through his precious blood, who have been by faith believers in Jesus. It teaches us that we are children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. But it is not true. This fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man is an idea that is deep in the American psyche, but it is not biblical. Our fallen Adam ruined us. If we were by nature sons of God, there would be no need for adoption. But God in His purpose looked upon us in our sin, speeding to destruction, and sent His Son to rescue us, and that is grace. Robert Trail, one of our our great worthies in our, in our heritage said, Merit and worth are only for hell, and they have no room in heaven, nor in the way to heaven. Justice reigns in hell, and grace reigns in heaven. So all we find that come to heaven, and so must they all know and believe that would be there. Sinners that are for merit will find it sadly in hell. Men's merit make hell, and Christ's merit makes heaven. Trail is right on. And if there is anyone here that believes that it's through your merit, even the least little bit that you can be saved, turn away from it and turn to Christ, and Christ alone for your salvation and redemption. The text is explicit about this. Our adoption was according to the good pleasure of His will, it tells us. God's good pleasure means that His choice of sinners to be redeemed and adopted is totally unconstrained. He did not have to do it. His will is His divine decree. Again, emphasizing His gracious choice was not conditioned by anything 
within ourselves. It is according to God's will. He delights in making sinful men and women into his sons and daughters. Adoption is a grace that is freely bestowed. Indeed, verse 6 can be translated, the grace with which he graced us. And this we have in the beloved, in union with Christ, who is the beloved of the Father. Grace is underscored by the predestinarian language of the text. All is traceable to his will. All is traceable to his sovereign good pleasure, to his predestinating love. So I again turn you here. Look at these words again. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now there is some question, if you'll look at your text a moment, there is some question, does in love come at the end of verse 4, or should it be read as we have it here with verse 5? Is it even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, or is it In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. Remember the original text would have had no punctuation. And it's an important question. Both of course are certainly true. But the meaning of the text is the question. Well in love goes with verse 5. In love he predestined us. And it goes with verse 5 because it corresponds to Paul's thought in Romans chapter 8. Those whom he foreknew, that is for love he also predestined. And that is the very same thought that we have in the text. He predestined us to be conformed to Christ. The point here is, predestination is all about the love of God. To fear predestination is to fear God's love. In love he predestined us. It's all about the love of God, is it not? Isn't that what the text teaches? And yet we hear Christians object to God's predestinating and God's electing. Well, let me ask you this question. Do you object to being redeemed? Do you object to being called? Do you object to being justified? Do you object to being adopted into God's family? Then how can you object to God's purposing to do so? Pretty simple, isn't it? We act as if the reason for God's existence is to convey sovereign liberty on man. And we refuse to allow God to exercise his own free will. But thank God he does, and if he didn't, we would all be lost. Predestination means, Christian, and this this should be such a part of your life, a part of your assurance, a part of your Christian walk. Predestination means that God loves you. He always has loved you. And of course, he always will love you. I was listening recently to the reminiscence of uh, an 82-year-old preacher, 82 at the time, he's about 89 or 90 now. Some of you will know this man, his name is Henry Mahan. A few of you would know his name. But I was listening to him reminisce about his life in ministry, and it was very beneficial to me to listen to him. He had a friend whose name was Dr. Magruder, and Magruder's father was a preacher. When Magruder was a boy, he went into his father's study where his father was poring over the Bible and trying to understand the biblical text, and he told his father that he'd come to a text he could not understand. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. I don't understand how God is love and how he could hate Esau, he said to his father. 
his father looked at him and he answered him this way, Son, when you learn God's word and the holiness of God, you'll understand how God can hate Esau. But son, the mystery of salvation is that you can't understand how God could love Jacob. Christian, how intense is God's love for you in Christ? This means the love that God has for his own son, he has for you who are in the beloved, the text says, in Christ. We sing, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, and oh, it's true. The Christian can never say, there was a time when God did not love me, or there was a time when God began to love me. God's love for you has no beginning. There is no uncertainty about it. It will have no ending. Someone here says to himself, can God love me? Can anyone love me? Yes, God loves the unlovely. Mr. Spurgeon put it this way, the only reason why man is saved and not another lies not in any sense in the man saved, but in God's bosom. Stand at the foot of the cross, you merit mongers, ye that delight in your own works, and answer this question. Do you think that the Lord of life and glory could have been brought down from heaven could have been fashioned like a man and have been led to die through any merit of yours? Shall these sacred veins be opened with any lancet less sharp than his own infinite love? And so, my friend, if we are saved, it is all of grace. If we are adopted into God's family, it is all of grace. The fall of man did not just cripple us, did not just hurt us, did not just disable us, The fall of Adam ruined the human race. And we were lost and ruined in the fall. And only one voice can bring the dead to life, and that is the voice of God Almighty in the gospel. It is all of grace from first to last, and our adoption, the text teaches, is by God's predestinating love and free grace. Well, that leads us to the second thing we want to see, which is the background of adoption. And here I need to be brief. We are not God's children by nature. We must be adopted into God's family to be a part of that family. And there is a fundamental division of mankind into two groups. You are either God's child or you are not. You are in God's family or you are not. That's the division. The term adoption, weathesia, is used by the Apostle Paul exclusively in the New Testament. No other writer uses it. It's used in Galatians, Romans, and Ephesians a total of five times. There undoubtedly is Old Testament backdrop to Paul's doctrine. He thinks, of course, of Israel as God's son. But it seems that Paul is also utilizing familiar Roman law regarding adoption to illustrate the adoption of sinners into God's family. Remember, Paul was a Roman citizen... And Galatians, Romans, and Ephesians, which utilizes the name adoption, were all Roman provinces. Now, in Roman law, adoption worked like this. A person was taken from his previous state and placed in a new one. Well, that's true of us, isn't it? Our old, his old debts were canceled. That's true of us. Uh, the one who adopts, the new father, controls the property, the relationships, the rights of the adoptee which is certainly true of God the Father in our lives. Uh, The one, uh, the adoptive father, promises to support and maintain uh, the son. 
And when adoption took place in the Roman world, it was for the good of the adopter primarily, the good of the one who was doing the adoption. Now, I want to stress that because in a more grand and wonderful manner, God adopts us for his own glory. And here we are reminded that the benefits of adoption are not for ourselves independently of the one who adopts us, but for God's glory, which underscores this, that we are sons and daughters of God by grace, and that grace brings a duty in our lives, and that is the duty of living consistently with what it means to be a son and daughter of God, because he has adopted us for his own glory. So the question in my life and yours is, am I living my life to the glory of God? Am I living my life in such a way that I stress in my life that I'm living for the glory of the one who has actually made me to be his son or made me to be his daughter? But now thirdly, we go to the privileges of adoption. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones again stressed importantly, I think, that the world knows nothing about honor and riches. That the ones in our world who are, who are uh, sometimes touted are the ones who know nothing about these things whatsoever. And so if you have few privileges in this world, the way the world sees privileges, honor, riches, acknowledgement, my friend, as a Christian, hold your head up. Because you have rights and privileges of which the world will never know. You are adopted into God's family. You are his son. You are his daughter. You have great and grand privileges. Well, what are those privileges? Well, let's list a few of them. Just a few. First of all, you have the privilege of a new name. A new name. In chapter 2, verse 3 of this book, Ephesians, we read that we were the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When God came and adopted us into his family, we were children of wrath. We were sinners just as the rest of mankind, the devil's name, was upon us. Now there's been a transition from wrath to grace, and we are adopted into God's family, and his name is upon you, and you are children of your heavenly Father. You are called by the name of his Son, Christian. So remember this. It is at once a privilege and a responsibility because God's name is upon you and upon me. Now what matters in this world is not the, the riches of this world and what gain we can have in this world. What matters in this world is my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life or is your name simply on the church roll? Are you a son and daughter of God by faith in Jesus Christ? Do you have this new name upon you? But also there's a new relationship, a new relationship. God was your judge. We were sunk down under his condemning wrath and his righteous frown. We were under his condemnation, guilty, guilty, guilty. What could you do? You could do nothing to save yourself and to remove this guilt. 
but the judge had a son who paid your debt. And then the judge adopted you as his own child. And you have the privilege now of calling this great God, the judge of all, the sovereign creator of all that is, you now have the privilege of calling him your father. What an incalculable privilege beyond comprehension that you may now call this God who condemns all sin your father because of the blood that was shed. A privilege that brings with it also the joyful duty of focusing upon God's fatherly care of you and also of serving my heavenly father with my whole heart. You have a new relationship, a new name, a new relationship, but also you have a new relationship to God's people. God says that the church is necessary, that the church is important, that the church is a part of your Christian life. And as God has treated us, so we treat and love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We are in union with Christ. He is the great Son of God. We have sonship. Of course, He's the unique Son, but we have sonship because of Him. The way in which we treat one another is the way in which we treat the Son of God because we are in union with Him. You are a part of the family of God. A new relationship with God's people. But not only that, you have a new nature. Paul dwells on adoption, of course, as a legal rather than than a change of nature. A legal matter rather than an inward change. John dwells on sonship as a change of nature. They are not precisely the same thing, but they are related. So putting Paul and John together, just think. Human adoption is a wonderful thing. It really is. We have some some wonderful examples of that in our congregation. It is a wonderful thing. But human adoption cannot accomplish a change of of nature. Natural birth cannot accomplish new birth. It cannot accomplish a change of nature either. But God adopts us legally, forensically, and He also changes our natures. He gives to us a new heart, new longings, new desires. And in John, the stress is on the new birth, the change of nature. You all probably know the story of George Whitfield, how the woman came to George Whitfield and said to him, why are you constantly stressing that you must be born again? And he looked at her and said, because you must be born again. (laughs) You need a change of nature. God adopts us into his family. That's legal. He also changes our nature so that we have the nature of sons and daughters of the living God. This is truly remarkable. A new relationship with God's people, a new nature. But also we have a new spirit, a new spirit, uppercase, the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look at a couple of passages. In Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, love to hear the pages turn, by the way. Galatians 4, 6, and 7, we read this. Let's go back to verse 4 just to get the context. But when the fullness of time came, had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here's adoption. Now verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
So you were no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. So look at this. The spirit of his son is now in our hearts, and that spirit is crying, Abba, Father, in tenderness, calling out to the Father. But now turn to Romans, the eighth chapter, and there notice in verses 15 and 16, Romans 8, let me begin with verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Now this is remarkable. In Galatians, the Spirit of God cries out in intimacy. In Romans, we are told that we cry out in intimacy, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit cries out in the fullness of his eternal relationship with the Father as the third person of the Trinity, And now also enables us to cry out in all of the extremity of our need, not into some black hole, but to a Father who loves us and receives us in the merit of Jesus Christ and gives to us, according to Romans 8, assurance that we are the children of God. So the Holy Spirit indwells us and enables us now to turn our direction and emphasis and hearts toward the heavenly Father who loves us, and in the process the Spirit of God is granting us stronger and stronger assurance of faith. It's a wonderful thing. One of my professors actually adopted a little girl. As I remember correctly, he was a, when he was a missionary in Mexico, and the child had actually literally washed up on the shore. And his family took her in and adopted her into his family. And he said it took a long while for her to begin to respond to her new father's love. And then one day she came and brought her shoes and said to him, Daddy, will you tie my shoelaces? And he knew there had been a change. Daddy, she called him for the first time, Daddy, and asked him to do this kind, fatherly thing. Well, that's what the Spirit of God is doing in your hearts. When you first come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. He's the Spirit of adoption, and He is working within your heart that you recognize the intimacy that you have with the Father, and in the process, He's bringing out within your heart, working within your heart, these deep and rich, wonderful, believing feelings toward the Father, trusting Him and being assured of your faith. Isn't that wonderful? John 14, Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans, I will send my spirit. And in Paul, the spirit of adoption cries, Abba, Father. But also we have a new inheritance as children of the living God. Our inheritance as a child of wrath was God's displeasure. But now there has been a transition from wrath to grace. From judgment to acceptance. And in Ephesians, this first chapter, verse 14 and verse 18... We read in those verses, who is the guarantee, speaking of the Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And in verse 
And in verse 18, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And so you have both in the present and in the future an inheritance, an inheritance to which God is taking you, which belongs to you as a child of God right now. And this, of course, is underscored in the 8th chapter of Romans when we are called joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that all that is Christ's is mine. I am not simply an heir. I am a joint heir with Christ. Now, in ancient Rome, the adopted son of a Roman patrician, a Roman nobleman, held patrician rank no matter how low his birth. He may have been taken from the gutters of Rome, no matter. He's adopted by the patrician and he now himself holds patrician rank. And no matter how the world views you or treats you, you have been taken out of the gutter of sin, saved by the grace of God, washed clean, adopted into the family of God, and no matter what your past, you hold patrician rank because you were adopted by the great sovereign of the universe. That, that's an inheritance, undefiled, unfading. And there is no one that can take it from you. Because it's reserved in heaven for you and you are reserved for it. We are told in 1 Peter 1. But there's more. We also have a new liberty. A new liberty. The Westminster Confession helps us here to summarize the biblical data. It's chapter 12 of the Westminster Confession. The chapter on adoption. And it reads this way. All those that are justified, God vouchsafeth in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God, have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Chapter 20 of the Confession, paragraph 1, is the chapter on Christian liberty. And that, of course, means the liberty of God's children. And the liberty of God's children is described for us in the Westminster Confession, chapter 20, verse 1. Again, summarizing the Bible. Now, see if you can keep your seats. This is really great. What is our liberty in Christ? Listen to this. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the curse of the moral law, And in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, 
and also in their free access to God, and their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law, but under the New Testament the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace, and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the old, under the law, did ordinarily partake of. We could spend weeks on just these. The liberty that you have as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's go on. You also have a new security. If you are God's child, nothing can unchild you. And to preach otherwise denies the gospel of grace. Is this important? Yes, it's important. It's important for you to remember when you come under the sense and feeling of the condemnation of the law of God, for we are justified and completely accepted, but morally we Christians are still sinners. We're being progressively sanctified, and so every day we can sense the absolute inflexibility of the justice of God's law, and we can sense being under condemnation when actually we've been freed from condemnation. Let me put it this way. A child of God fearing the law would be like, like a former Russian citizen who now is the citizen of the United States and lives here fearing the Russian government who still condemns him. Well, you come up to him and say, why are you fearing? You're a citizen of this country now. You live here. Why are you fearing their condemnation? Well, that's the point. We no longer live in the realm of condemnation. We live in the realm of security in Christ. So it's important that we grasp it. We also have a new access. Boy, I wish I had more time. We would go to Romans 8, 26 and 27 and to Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25. But since we're here in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. He's talking about how Jew and Gentile have been united through the cross. And he says in verse 18, Ephesians 2, 18, For through him we both have access into one spirit to the Father access to the throne of grace. I'll stress that again before we're done. But let me add one other, one other blessing that we have as one other privilege that we have as a son and daughter of God. And it's one that you might not be thinking about as you go through the list in your own mind. It's a new discipline. I mean the father's discipline of us as sons and daughters. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We'll begin reading at verse 3. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 3. Hebrews 12, 3 and following. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself 
so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? All right, so this is adoption. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. One of the great evidences of God's love for you is that he disciplines you. God will not allow true believers to live like hell and then go to heaven. He will work in our hearts to bring us to faith and repentance and by discipline to make us to be godly people. If a father, an earthly father, does not discipline his children, he does not love them no matter what he says. Now that love needs to be in grace, it needs to be in mercy, it needs to be gospel-centered and gospel-oriented. It needs to be for the child's good if it's real discipline, but that's the point. This is how our Heavenly Father loves us, by disciplining my life and directing me on to my heavenly home. Well, these are the privileges of adoption. Let me add a fourth point. What else do you have to do? It's Sunday. (laughs) It's the Sabbath. All right. The praise due to God for adoption, very briefly, verse 6. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. I want you to think about something. You have privileges that the elect angels don't have. Have you ever thought about it? I point this out to help us to marvel at what God has done for us. Have you ever considered the elect angels? They are confirmed in holiness, but the elect angels do not have the privileges that you have. Christ did not shed his blood for them to save them from sin. They have not been justified by faith in Christ as you have They are not adopted into God's family as you are. They are not sons and daughters as you are. You have privileges that the elect angels do not have. Contemplate that. Because you have been saved to the praise of His glorious grace. And so we are God's adopted children to the praise of His glorious grace, verse 6. And God wants to be praised by His children. He showers grace on us. How can we help but praise Him? It is His joy and pleasure to do us good, even in chastisement, 
to work in our lives to conform us to the image of his own son. So what was Israel's privilege? Isaiah 62, he established Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the whole earth, is ours as the people of God formed for himself to declare his praise. And so you exist, and this church exists, for the praise of his glorious grace. Let's bring it to a conclusion. Let me just take one of the privileges that I've mentioned this morning and underscore it. Why not make use of this new access that you have? You know, as a lost person, you didn't have that access. As a believer, you have an access to the throne of grace. You have a new boldness. You may now commune with God in prayer, much often with freedom and with consistency, with joy and with exultation. Are you doing it? It's a privilege purchased for you by the blood of Jesus to go to the throne of grace. Yes, pray by all means without ceasing, but also time alone with the Lord, with nothing but communion with God in mind, pouring out your heart before the throne of grace. Your prayers are not only accepted and heard because of the intercessor with whom you're in union, they are heard also through him. And Christian, if you say, well, I'm such a sinner, I haven't come, I haven't been in my devotion time for a long while, I really haven't prayed because I just sense myself to be such a sinner. Remember, the throne of grace was never intended for any but sinners. Your boldness is not because of anything within you, but because of what is in Him. The foundation of boldness is Christ. Again, as the old Robert Trail said, there is more of grace in the promise than there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it. I'll bet some of you didn't hear that. There is more of grace in the promise than there can be of sin and misery in the man that pleads it. And so adopted child of God, come, come freely, come boldly, come in union with Christ, come with your new name upon you, out of your new relationship with God and his people, from the depths of God's mercy and with your new nature, with a new spirit that indwells you in the fullness of your new inheritance, in unshakable security with liberty and free access, come, come boldly to the throne of grace. And I close with these words from John Newton, Lord, I approach thy mercy seat where thou dost answer prayer. There humbly fall before thy feet, for none can perish there. Thy promise is my only plea. With this I venture nigh. Thou callest burdened souls to thee, and such, O Lord, am I. Bowed down beneath a load of sin, by Satan sorely pressed, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield, my hiding place, that sheltered near thy side. I may my fierce accuser face and tell him, thou hast died. That's boldness. Come boldly before the throne of grace. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.